Welcome to the process of things. Does stuff work? This is episode seven, Lean Six Sigma. Does it work? In this week's episode, we discuss Lean Six Sigma. If your job is anything to do with improving the quality of your organization's products and services, then you've probably heard of Lean or Six Sigma or Lean Six Sigma. You may think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread, or you may think it's outlived its time. You may not even know what it is. Hashtag RIP Lean Six Sigma. Is it true? Was it a buzzword that was good while it lasted? Is it still relevant? In Act 1, we'll take you through the news. What's current with Lean Six Sigma right now? In Act 2, the funnies, I mostly will be very, very funny about things about Lean Six Sigma. Lean Six Sigma is not funny, Nicole. Yes, it is. Even though it's about statistics and math and stuff, we'll still be funny about it. In Act 3, the science, we'll take the nerds through the sciencey, techie, data-oriented bit behind Lean Six Sigma. And in Act 4, put it to the test, we will tell you, does Lean Six Sigma actually work? I'm Nicole North. And I'm Ruth Henderson. And we are your hosts today. Welcome to The Process of Things, where we take current business trends and buzzwords and let you know whether they actually work or not. Act 1, in the news. So, you probably would rather I tell you what Six Sigma is than you tell me or Lean Six Sigma. Or, or why don't you tell me, Nicole, what's your understanding of what Lean Six Sigma is before we get into the news? Well, at the most basic level, it is a brilliant culmination between two genius methodologies called Lean and Six Sigma. That's very good, Nicole. Right? Very smart. And in my general terms, Lean is more about... Um, organizing things in such a way that minimizes waste, you know, a kind of everything in its place, um, error proofing, things like that. And Lean Six Sigma is where it gets all mathy. Um, and you want to, let's see if I can say it here. Well, I'm waiting. You're waiting. Um, Six Sigma is where you try and reduce the number of errors in a particular process to less than two standard deviations. One standard deviation? Two standard deviations? We'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. But I think that's awfully very good. Awfully very good? Awfully very good. Awfully very good. Um, yeah, and we will in the science section um, in Act 3, we'll be talking a little bit more about what that all means. And Nicole, especially when you're referring to the mathy, sciencey stuff, we'll talk about that a little. At its highest level, Lean Six Sigma is a way to improve the operations of a business um, so that it's more efficient, more effective, and their customers are happy. And it's absolutely based in not only statistics, but it's based in, um, with the addition of lean, it's based in a whole approach to waste, keeping the customer focused, and a focus on the team that's uh, actually doing the work. So it's done all over the, the world in different industries, from banking to manufacturing to um, fire departments, the army, healthcare, everybody seems to be doing Lean Six Sigma. And so one of the things that we talked about in the um, opening was, is it a buzzword? Is it outlived? It's time. You can hear about that and people would say, um, oh yeah, that's, that's from the 90s. 
that that happened in the late 90s, the early 2000s. Well, you know what everyone does now is they just classically, um, they will take a concept, you know, put some new shiny wrapping paper on it and a few mm. extra ribbons, and they will take what was basically um, a methodology from the past and just repackage it and make it yeah. sound cool again. Yeah. Right? It's laser process improvement. Yeah, laser, laser and it's focus. basically just lean six sigma with a pretty bow on it and some new names to make it appealing well it's true and lean six sigma is almost the result of just that originally it was about six sigma and i'll talk to the math later but six sigma was like you said about reducing variation and making things super consistent over and over and over again the exact same thing happened so that you could predict it it was almost entirely in manufacturing and then um, another focus came, uh, Lean Six Sigma was born in the States out of Motorola and a lot of quality movements in the 80s. And then Lean came along, and it's from the Japanese methodology. You may have heard of Kaizen uh, or some of those different things. And Lean takes a completely different approach. And some genius, I don't know who, said, hey, let's put them together and make Lean Six Sigma so they would stop arguing over which one was better. So my definition at the beginning was absolutely bang on. It was A plus. It is a merge of both of them. Um, it takes the best rigor of Six Sigma and adds the customer perspective, which to be fair is also in Six Sigma, but a different focus on having the customer define what is value added um, and adds the... Um, it adds the ability to consider the culture that you're about to uh, make a change in and requires certain things of leaders that are trying to make those changes. Neat. And it seems like most businesses would just start throwing darts at things like, let's add flashing lights. Let's, um, we need to change our customer lunchtime. You know, we need to just yeah. change all kinds of random things. And then you never actually have any control about which one of those ones is making impact. Yeah, it's that idea that, you know, you, you can go into any organization and you can have 20 smart people around the table with lots of experience and they will have 20 different opinions on what needs to be fixed and why. And this type of methodology came along to say, you know what, there is science behind it. And if you would take a, take a shot at that science, you would be able to figure out what the most effective thing is and where you're going to get the most benefit for your effort. So I found a couple of really funny to me because I'm a nerd this way, um, articles in the news. And the first one was talking about, um, overused startup buzzwords. And, uh, it's when I did my training in six Sigma, uh, not lean, it was just six Sigma at the time. It was about 1998. And I got my certification and I became in Six Sigma. They have their certification levels similar to getting different belts in karate. <laughs> Which is, I think, why people find it so comical. I know. Like, you have of, your green belt? Yeah. Are you going to karate chop I know. Me, I used to gonna... get so upset when people would say that. It's like, thanks. Yes, I've heard that. I was actually a black belt. Thank you very much. Um, so I did my training when I was at Ford in the late nineties and around then it was really big. You could Google Six Sigma and there'd be jobs all over the place and manufacturing, particularly organizations were really getting into this. And so were non-manufacturing organizations. And we'll talk about that a little bit because they really struggled a lot more than the manufacturing industry. Anyway, I see this list of things um, that are, are uh, buzzwords and they're tired and they should be re retired. And one of them is Six Sigma, 
Another one is disruptive, which is hilarious because of the next article, but it's also got words like sassy. How, what, who is using sassy? As a buzzword. Who's using sassy what at work? Do you say make so it more often. sassy? Sass this up. Sass this up. You're sassy. Or ubiquitous. I love the word. That's ubiquitous. a fantastic word. If people know what that means and you know what it means, mm-hmm. you should continue using it. I think That's so. smart. Yep. Um, social media. That's not a buzzword. That's just a word it, that we need to use because it's a thing. And it's relevant. Well, yeah, it's not a buzzword. Should we just pretend and use something else? Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of things in here that are my pet peeves, like think outside the box. Gross. Low-hanging fruit Low is hanging my word. It's not on this list, but it that should one be. grosses me out. Or at the end of the day. You know, at the end of the day, what's the right thing to do? Come on. Just <laughs> so there's a few words on here, but I would say most of these aren't. So I just don't like this list. And I'm personally affronted that Six Sigma is on this list. Well, uh, of again, it's not a buzzword. Now, microblogging is on this list. What's microblogging? I don't know. I was hoping you knew. I'm thinking it's like a one paragraph blog. Maybe that's actually Super short. becoming quite popular right I'm gonna now. Start, you know what? I'm going to start using these words all the time. We'll bring Screw it back. Screw this list. Screw this list. All right. And that brings me on to my second article that I liked. And um, that first one was from Forbes. And this one is um, interesting. It's about it's talking about business to community and it talks about what we knew, what we need to do to take supposed buzzwords like Six Sigma or Lean Six Sigma and make them uh, important again. And what it says is that the um, culture is the key and that the struggle is quality. So they recognize that there's quality issues with all the things that they're doing. And when we talk about business processes, think about what you might call operations, the operations of an organization. What makes it tick? What are all the logistics? The Not the fun stuff of creating the thing and marketing and selling it, but the stuff that makes it happen. So like making the widgets? making Actually making the widgets um, or paying Widget for the widgets. Widget is a buzzword too. <laughs> paying for the widgets, um, mailing the widgets. All of those things are operational things that where we're often very ineffective. So this says that you have quality issues in operations and that culture is the key. And that from there, the team is the most important thing. And we've talked about this before with culture, as Peter Drucker said, being eaten for breakfast by some organizations. You can make all the changes that you want. You can have the best intention, the greatest idea, a killer implementation plan. Um, and there's going to be benefits for everyone but if no one wants to change or doesn't understand the reason for changing, then they're not going to change. Well, and if you're making widgets on the line and you hate Sally who sands the widgets before you go to paint them and you don't have a great culture, a great teamwork with Sally, then when you get that poorly sanded widget, you're just going to say, Whatever, I'm just going to paint it anyways and send out a poor quality widget. Yeah, and blame Sally. And blame Sally. I'm picturing elves in Santa's workshop at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Sally the elf, (laughs) sanding a little toy, and you painting it. And you don't really care. I don't care, because I hate Sally Mm -hmm. so much. And there's nothing in the process to actually check and prevent you from making that mistake 
or for somebody to prevent it um, down the line of actually being sent to a customer. No, and maybe once it does get to the customer, we just have this great return policy, which is awesome, mm -hmm. and we just send out a new widget, so no one is the wiser to Sally's sucky sanding. That's right, Sally's sucky sanding, I like that too. You know, um, a lot of organizations, smartly and rightly, have processes to catch stuff. So they will, at the very end of the Santa's assembly line of making those toy trains, they will have somebody at the end who's inspecting all of them or inspecting as many as they can or is, is right to get an idea of whether the quality's good. Wait, Ruth, yes. isn't inspection waste? It is. It's what Lean says is a bad idea. They do this because they haven't done all the stuff up front to present, prevent the mistake from happening in the first place. Ah, so if you use Lean Six Sigma to improve all the steps beforehand, you can eliminate additional wastes. And by waste, we mean paying someone to do work that's not actually delivering value to the customer. Um, we don't have to have that inspection step. That's right. Timothy's getting fired? No. Timothy will do something else. Or he will still do it, but at a greatly reduced rate, like once a month or hmm. randomly. Um, and this idea of having the safety net, if you will, of the return policy is the same thing. We are going to have this great return policy because we know that a lot of these things are broken and they're going to have to come back instead of figuring out properly what's broken. Now, a good example of that is when General Electric was one of the, the first big manufacturers to um, make Six Sigma on its own a big thing, a buzzword. And Jack Welch was the, the guy at the top at the time. And one of the, the stories that came out of there was um, they had a lot of light bulbs that were breaking in shipping. So they changed the packaging. They still broke in shipping. They changed the packaging again, added more, um, I don't know, styrofoam around it or whatever it was. They still broke. Then they went back to the manufacturing process and they were changing all these things, still breaking. Then they looked at it using the Six Sigma principles and they found out that they had changed the coating on the light bulbs that made the tension on the surface tension of the light bulb made it shatter. Oh. So they were wasting all this time and energy and money fixing things that were not broken. So that's essentially what these do. The last article that I found that I thought was kind of cool in the, in the, um, in the news section was this article that says, what happens when two bankers and an engineer get a billion dollars? So this is quite a long article I found. It's these uh, three men that literally have a billion dollars and they got together to find what they called crumbling infrastructure and fix it. And they're working on things like pipelines and um, airports. And what I thought was so funny is that he talks about um, airports using what the author calls um, engineering speak, which I, yeah, you get, so the quote says, most of this guy's recruits speak a language familiar to engineers, but foreign to anyone else, Six Sigma. Um, and so the guy says, anyone who's been to an airport can say that it's operating at maybe two Sigma. That's maybe 30% mistakes happening all the time. So I thought that that was funny that he called it only engineering speak, first of all, because it's not just engineers now. It's in, like I said, non-manufacturing businesses all around the world. And um, then I thought it was cool that the guy actually clarified, clarified it. And he says, something's operating at two sigma. That means that 30% of the time they're making mistakes. So further, when you were talking about standard deviations, the word six sigma actually means that the amount of time that you make mistakes is like point 
zero, 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 zero. Like it's so small that there's 3.4 mistakes for every million opportunities. So that's pretty small. And if you're at an airport and it's at two Sigma, that's, that's too, too many Sigma. Many too many. It's, you need four more Sigma in there. <laughs> so what that means is wherever he's applying this, I don't know, maybe it's baggage handling. So for every million bags that are being processed in the airport, there should only be three and a half that go missing. Pretty sure that's not the number. At least it's not at Pearson. No, definitely not. <laughs> you know, and if you think about pipelines, how many millions of liters of oil are going through the pipes that are they breaking, leaking, oozing, whatever. Um, they use it to look at water treatment. They use it to calculate how many prescriptions are wrong. Like anytime there's really high volume, this idea of reducing the chance of it breaking is what's most critical. So this guy said that he can't even go to an airport anymore because everywhere he looks, there's opportunities. And it made me think of the last time you and I traveled. Oh, we went nuts. <laughs> every lineup, every process, we thought we could do it better for we, sure. For sure we could, right? And it's so uh, every... Why can't they just... Yeah, every time anybody is certified in any kind of process improvement methodology, whether it's Six Sigma or Lean or Lean Six Sigma or Appreciative Inquiry like you are everything becomes an opportunity to fix. So we can get a little obnoxious. Especially at an airport. Act two, the funnies. <laughs> what funny Six Sigma stories do you have for us oh, today? Oh, I, you know, I've got a few. Um, when I started doing my training in Six Sigma, um, it was at Ford in Canada. And so the CEO in Ford in the States, Jack Nasser, was buddies with Jack Welch, and he decided he was going to launch Six Sigma not only across the um, manufacturing portion, but also the business side. And so the funny, well, it's, I guess it's funny to me. The funny thing was they were looking for one person from Ford of Canada to be the first person to do Six Sigma um, in Canada. And so they chose me. And so the president at the time, Bobby Gaunt, um, it was a woman, and she called me into her office and she told me they were picking me and I said, isn't this statistics? And she says, yeah, it is. And I said, that was my lowest mark in school. I barely passed. I got a 16% on my final exam in statistics. So um, for me, that was kind of amusing until I went in and I realized it is statistics, but they, they work you through it and it's so much more than that. So that was kind of cool. And uh, I was in a race with an engineer from the Louisville, Kentucky plant to be the first person certified in the world in Ford Motor Company of 300,000 people. And uh, I beat him by five minutes. So that was kind of fun. Neat. But I had to do, the, the thing that was really hard was finding projects that would work in this non-manufacturing industry because you need data to do statistics. Now, imagine you are um, producing cars, okay? So you picture a factory and you've got a car rolling off the line every minute or every 30 seconds, depending on what the factory is. And you find that the hood is not fitting. When you close it and you, you, know, you shut the front hood, it doesn't properly fit. Well, you have hundreds of cars coming off the line that you can then say, you know, how often did this happen? And you can calculate things. If you're in, a, in an environment where you're working in operations, like finance, and checks go missing, you don't bill customers as often as you make cars. So you can't collect data very often. You don't write as many checks perhaps, or you're trying to do the efficiency of um, performance reviews and they happen twice a year. 
you, it just, it's a lot harder to do. So um, the funnies for me was trying to work with these people who were not engineers, not manufacturing oriented, and teach them statistics. Having been someone who almost failed statistics in university, that I found really funny. It's really not that funny, but it was pretty funny. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's interesting. I also, when I was in university, this is a unplanned story. Oh. Unplanned story alert. Um, When I was in university, uh, I did my undergraduate in archaeology, and one of our required courses was called Geographical Information Systems. And when uh, my friend Zanette and I went to go get our textbooks from the bookstore at U of T, um, the cover of the book said statistics. And we thought, oh dear, they must have made an error. There's a problem. Uh Let's go to the class and figure out where we can get this geographical information systems book. Oh no. And it was just, I believe it was to make art students not be frightened. Um, and they, th- th- it literally was just statistics. The professor never tried to call it anything but that. Um, and that's what we did. Oh, did you get oh, better on struggled. 15% on your final exam? Uh, we did. We studied very, very hard for this, my friends Annette and I. We really hunkered down. And in fact, it was because she said, let's go to the TA's. Um, the TA before one of the final exams had like a, what was like a, a meeting time? What was that called? Like office hours. Yeah, office hours. TA office hours. And I went, Zanette, I'm not going to the office hours. Like, that's a waste of my time. You know, we should just be in the library doing more problems, solving more problems. That's how we're going to pass this exam. And we ended up going to the TA's office hours. And they were going through old exams, which is a really common thing. At U of T, you could, like, look up all the old exams for past years. And it was supposed to be, like, a study tool. But like they buying were- the LSAT prep book. Yes. Yes, except they were actual real exams. So she was going through the last three years of exams question by question. And again, I was rolling my eyes and my friends Annette just kept nudging me saying like, just do the questions. We did them. And the exam was identical no. to the questions no. that we did in the, in the TA's office hours. Like whatever exam from whatever year we were doing was exactly it. And it was part of it was multiple so, choice. Like you had to do the, you had to solve the problems, but it was multiple choice. And I literally went, C, A, I don't even have to do the work. Like oh I knew the God. answers because I had practiced them so many times. Thank you, Zanette. If you're listening out there, well, thanks for helping I me guess pass that's statistics. Because you still knew it, right? Because you had to do them. I did know yeah. how to solve the problems, mm-hmm. but we'd gotten all of the like little tricky bits out, and the oh. questions were identical. Mine's just the opposite because I was doing so well in stats. Of course, you were. I, you know, math person. I had like a 93 or something. This is when I was at Queens, and um, I had a 93 going into the Christmas break because it was a full year course, and after the holidays. Um, the prof was a real jerk. He was mean. He used to pick on people, but he had left me alone. Suddenly I was his favorite. And he started, I remember him saying, you in the yellow dress. And he started this new topic and he was just ham. Every, every time I went, he was picking on me and I don't know why. So I thought, well, to heck with you. I'm doing really well. So I'm not going to go to class anymore. So I had the book, did all the work in the book. He changed textbooks, didn't know it, did topics that I hadn't even studied. So I sat down with the exam in front of me and, and it was multiple choice, and I started flipping the pages, and I knew four questions, and I got 16%. I'm sorry. But because my mark was so high going in, I just passed the course. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a little opposite from yours. But I, I think um, 
that's the funny thing to me is that people think of Six Sigma particularly about as it's all stats, all math, all the time, and it's not. It is. It stresses me out because it feels very rigid. It is rigid in its approach. It is rigid in its approach, but it doesn't have to be. Act three, the science. The science behind Six Sigma. So you're going to have to interject and laugh or something if I'm sounding too nerdy because there's nothing unnerdy about this. I'm just going to take a little nap under my mic. Don't. (laughs) Stop it. You know what? There are people out there, there are listeners who really like this and really want to know more about it and whether it works. So that's why we're here. (laughs) No, I know. Okay. Um, Six Sigma. So uh, as we've mentioned, Six Sigma on its own is a problem-solving methodology. Lean on its own is a problem-solving methodology. And as we mentioned, it takes the best of both worlds and puts them together. So like you have a problem, as in, you know, we don't have, we have too many returns on yeah. this product. Yes. Or too much so, of this, too much of uh, that. Customers are complaining that it's taking too long for us to complete something for them. Um, we get too many products back that are broken or don't last as long as they should. Um we, our customer satisfaction scores are terrible. Could it even be things like wait times? Yeah. Customer service wait times. Mm -hmm. It could be, um, even from a perspective where I don't see a specific problem right now, but I know I want to take my business a step further. So we're working with a, a client, a new client right now who has an enormous innovation plan for what they're doing. And they want to do process work first before they start innovating things when they don't even know how they all fit together. So they want to uncover whether there are problems before they start trying to change it or make something better. So it's not only just a problem-solving methodology, it's just a bettering methodology. Bettering, improving. Yeah, it's a way of understanding the truth about things. Ooh, Yeah. um, One of the things that you and I have been talking about with another client is communicative competence, right? And the the need to be able to communicate well with people to avoid conflict means that you have to understand the intent of what the other person's saying. You have to understand their perspective and you have to share the same truths. So this is about sharing the same truths in order to avoid the conflict of making bad decisions later, whether it's deciding what to fix if your wait times are too long or, or it's taking too long to do things, um, or if it's in deciding what to improve because you don't know what best to improve on. Like my example with Sally and her sloppy sanding skills. That's right. It might not actually be Sally. It might not. It's actually Peter in the <laughs> widget cutting department. Or, or Sally has the wrong sandpaper. It's probably Sally. Well, it's kind of actually. Let's find the truth. I should have used this as a a funny story. It's not, it's kind of funny, sad. Um, (laughs) One of the manufacturing examples that I was exposed to was a company that was, um, had things that were being cast in a huge casting factory and they were, they were being shipped somewhere else for use and they never were arriving with the right specifications that they had asked for when they cast. So think about um, creating a mold for something. And then they ship it somewhere else to actually make it part of an engine or whatever. And it was always the wrong um, spec. So they started shipping them back and forth to try and figure out what was wrong. 
And eventually they realized that they were using calipers that hadn't been synchronized. Hmm. So with the uh, synchronization off, the organization that was receiving the product was using a tool that wasn't measuring properly. Hmm. So in fact, they were fine this whole time, but they had been wasting millions of dollars. I found that funny sad because I thought these people should be fired. <laughs> but no, the, the reality is, is it Sally's fault? Is it the tools that she's got? Um, remember Edward Deming said, you know, you take a bad um, process and put a good person in it and the process will win every time. So Six Sigma says that everything that we do, the outcome of anything, whether it's building a car or making a hamburger or filling out your income tax, which I know you love to do. <clears throat> She's shaking her head. All of the outcomes of that are based on what we put into it. And you add to that some level of uncertainty or in Six Sigma, they call it variation. And it's the variation that they want to be able to take out. So in order to be effective at Six Sigma, we need to make sure that all the inputs are the best quality they can be. And we've gotten rid of any possibility of, um, of them not being great one day or using the wrong tools or any kind of communicative incompetence that would cause it to be not working well. So they use this and then their, your rigid approach that you're talking about is called DMAIC. And it's called Define, Measure, Analyze, Improve, and Control. And they have five stages. It's very rigid. It says you have to do all of these things in order um, and analyze them specific specifically. And that's when they use all the stats. And then coming out at the end of that, you go, oh my gosh, of these hundred things that were involved in building a car or filling in your income tax, here's the one thing that was causing most of the problem. And that's what we're going to fix versus everyone taking a guess at it. So that's the science behind Six Sigma. The science behind lean, as I mentioned, it was from um, uh, Japan where the lean concept came from. And it looked at um, the concepts of continuous improvement and respecting people. So it says, let's not waste people's time. Um, let's talk, let's talk about value add and get the customer to tell us what's value add. So I could be designing, um, uh, a new um, elevator and I could put all these new wonderful things in it that I think are important. If I don't ask the customer, I may get it completely wrong. And I may forget that people who have visual impairments need braille on the wall. So, uh, but I may have added a bench at the back that I thought was really great, except it takes up extra room. So it's really important that we get the customer to tell us what's the most important. So, they talk about the fundamentals of lean, say not only do we focus on the customer and value add, but we try to improve things not by focusing on variation, but by reducing waste. And as you said earlier, there's lots of different types of waste. So they have uh, transportation, waiting, overproduction, defects, inventory. Um, I think these are really simple ones for yes. people to go and quickly have a look at, which is why I think sometimes lean appeals a little bit more to me because yeah. it's a little bit more, okay, quickly, are there, you know, you told a great story often about um, when you were in Uganda working on the admin processes there and a file folder would go from person oh. to person to person to person and no one actually did anything with no. it. They just kept passing it along. It's a yeah. perfect example of transportation waste. And probably also an example of waiting, right? If those file oh, yeah. folders would then sit on that person's desk for 
two days, three days, six days, whether people are in manufacturing or not, everyone is probably a victim of approvals at one point. And that's a classic example of waste. Um, Overproduction, we make too many things because we know that some of them are going to break. That's part of it. Um, you know, defects, inventory, movement, extra processing, and my mm, favorite. Movement's a really interesting one. Why? Um, I really like that one. So I had done um, a course in methods time measurement. Mm-hmm. And so it talked about um, how long does an administrative process take? So um, let's say someone comes in to fill in an application at a Service Ontario or a Service Canada office comes in um, and then they have to turn and move their body and walk three steps to pick up the stapler and where they come back and bring it back, that that movement is extra wasted space. So one way to optimize the process is to make sure that all the um, components that you need to complete your process are within you know, a very ergonomic and shortest distance in order to complete those yeah. tasks. So I think that one's really fascinating too. It is a neat one. My brother-in-law did something like that when he was doing his master's in ergonomics and he was working, he was in the army and they were working on the ergonomics within a tank. So Neat. people sitting in a tank and did they have to move much to get where they needed, um, to get the information they needed. Cool. So it's all kind of related. So, oh, and my favorite one actually of all the, the wastes, it used to be the seven wastes and now they actually sometimes add disengaging people. <laughs> That's as a, a waste, huge waste. Right? I mean, I don't know. Sally's a huge waste in my She's eyes. Stop being mean to Sally the elf. Um, it's, it's so important when you look at people who are disengaged. You and I did a course recently for a client and we talked about incivility. What was it? $14,000 per year. Per person. Per person were lost on incivil behavior. People responding to, poorly responding to incivil behavior. Yeah. So um, people were becoming disengaged and purposely slowing down or calling in sick more because they felt the work environment was toxic because of uncivil behavior. People do the same thing when they're frustrated by the process that they're in because they think, I can't do any, I have no control over this. So Sally is complaining about her sanding paper all the time and she knows it's crappy. It should be fine grain and they give her coarse grain and there's nothing she can do, so whatever. She just does a, you know, a lukewarm job and hands it on to the next person. So the idea of adding the personal touch is what made Lean kind of stand out to look at this, whether I'm talking about the customer or the employee. So somebody then said, let's take the the best of both and put it together. And they said, now we're not only going to look to remove variation, we are also going to look at reducing waste and ensuring that we understand the perspective of the customer better and the perspective of the employee. So the person who did this was very, very smart. Mm-hmm. I would say much like the guy that invented the McGriddle. <laughs> the McGriddle? Yeah, it's pancakes and eggs in one neat sandwich. <laughs> okay, yes. <laughs> Here <are> bananas. <laughs> but here's the thing. There's, there's a problem with this science. Um, and I am a blasphemer because it can be too rigid. What? I know. Act four, putting it to the test. It can be too rigid. It's too much. Well, and and organizations that are already struggling, they're busy, 
Um, they're not getting deliverables done on time. They're not getting product yeah. out on time. All of those things don't feel like they don't have time or the capacity to devote someone looking at all this stuff in such detail. Yeah. When I first was doing Six Sigma, you were required. So it was, there are many different training opportunities in Six Sigma and Lean Six Sigma right, right now. When I did it, it was through the Six Sigma Academy in the States and it was very rigorous. You had to be um, removed from your work role for two years to take the training, apply the projects and actually make a difference in a company because they were putting a lot of money in training you, investing in you and, and the organization. And companies don't have that luxury to do that right now. Um, I've been a part of a few different companies now where I've known them who have tried to implement Six Sigma non-manufacturing and failed because of the rigor that's required and the fact that they can't wait in this digital world for all of the rigor. Well, and think about you know, our public sector clients, right? Mm -hmm. Here are people trying to do more and more work with less and less funding, less and mm -hmm. less um, full-time equivalents, less and less employees. Mm -hmm. um, how are you gonna have time to go and do this mm -hmm. and take a full, you know, a full-time employee to spend time analyzing the data? Yeah, um, one of the, uh, the bosses that I had when I was working in the government was very interested, based on some amazing work that Canada Post had done using Six Sigma, and he was very interested in rolling it out and asked me what I thought, and I, I just, I was so afraid to say it, but I finally did because I trusted him, um, that I didn't believe it was the right thing to do, mm -hmm. and that there are concepts that absolutely yeah. work, but the, the real rigor that's required in a formal Six Sigma or Lean Six Sigma project requires that an organization have tried it before or something like it. They've made the, they've already taken the baby steps, steps. They've started changing their culture. They've made some headway. The, the soil is fertile and ready. I think one of the, if we talk about say one of our um, public sector clients where it was really, uh, it did really work in, in segments was when um, we transformed the culture of the organization from intuition driven yeah. to data driven. Um, and a great example of, of that is an organization we were working with, um, served the public, had uh, wait times that were exceeding in some cases over 90 minutes for yeah. a transaction. Um, and the previous culture of the organization led people to say, I know it's because we have more clients than we ever had before. Yeah. Well, of course, um, my team that was working through all the data quickly ran the data and said, no, 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 there's actually not more people. So that's not it. You kind of saw the intuition. People go, hmm, well, then it's got to be this, right? And they constantly had a gut reaction to what they thought was wrong. And it ended up being something, it ended up being our workforce planning team who figured out that that they had changed the lunch hours yeah. of the customer service reps. By like 15 minutes. From 45 minutes and had given them an hour. And mm -hmm. they did this as an engagement strategy mm -hmm. to try and get people more motivated, saying, okay, if everyone has a one-hour lunch, maybe they'll be more refreshed. And that 15 minutes caused um, a, a buildup in people over the lunch hour that they were never able to recover from. Yeah. And so it was none of the things that were... Um, 
intuitive based. Oh, we have more staff. Oh, we have less people. Oh, we need that. It was none of that. It was that they had extended the lunch hour by 15 minutes. And so I think where Six Sigma can work as a starting point is to turn from a gut driven organization to a data driven organization and create that culture where at a minimum we look at the data we have before we start making changes. Yeah, I, I think yes and for that. What I would add is that that was not full Six Sigma. Not at all. That was pieces of Six Sigma used to um, change people's way of thinking. And lean. We did a lot of work in lean in the same environment to say, here is uh, here are some areas where we are wasting time, money, effort, people, etc. cetera. Um, so to, by, by just taking elements of it, it was able to work. Um, that worked in um, uh, the government uh, company, that uh, organization we were talking about. Where it didn't work was another organization that I was uh, working with that was a communications organization. And they said, we're going to do the full thing. And they, here's the interesting thing, they did not allow people to be trained as in Six Sigma or Lean Six Sigma um, fully and leave their jobs. They had to do both off so the they, side of the off desk. Off the side of the desk. That's the worst. Yep. It never went anywhere. They spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on this training. Um, best of intentions did not work because they insisted on doing the full thing before the culture shifted. And at the time, the leadership in this organization was all about putting out fires. They were not interested in strategic, longer-term things. They wanted to put out fires. And as you can imagine, full... Lean Six Sigma has a rigid project structure and isn't usually able to be rushed. There are exceptions, but usually it takes a long time. And when the culture is saying, yeah, 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 I get that's a strategic thing and you're going to change these so it doesn't happen again, I don't care. Right now there's a problem and that's what I want you to address. So it failed. Still sounds like a culture issue, right? That's exactly what Um, it was. Gut gut reactive, intuition-based organizations do not have a culture that supports Six Sigma, Lean Six Sigma, any of those things. So one of the first things you have to change is the culture before you'd eventually get there. Absolutely. Am I right? You are right. You're exactly right. And that other government organization you were talking about would be ready now for a full Six Sigma rollout because they had changed to data thinking. They had shifted Mm -hmm. so that the culture um, always asked for the data before they made a decision. And they would be ready to take the next step now versus that other communications company that hadn't even bothered thinking uh, differently. That's going to fail every time. So the news says that Six Sigma might be dead. Or it might be the next best thing. Maybe we just need to put a... Put lipstick on a pig, so to speak. Oh, that's an old phrase. You and your buzzwords. Let's run it up the flagpole and see who salutes. (laughs) (laughs) The science says that Six Sigma actually works. Every time. Every time. We say that Six Sigma works if you have a culture that is ready to take it on and if you have the capacity to do it. And it also works piecemeal and bit by bit. Yeah. If that's the best that you can start with, that's okay too. So survey says... It works most of the time. <laughs> Not <Thanks>. all the time. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. If you want more, check out at the whiteboard at www.whiteboardconsulting.ca and on Twitter at whiteboard C-O-N-S. Next week on the podcast, we tackle process mapping. <laughs>
That's my favorite. Special thanks to our awesome collaborator, Jason Hatcher, creative director and visual designer, for your vision and support in the production of this podcast. Check out his work at www.digitalanalog.ca. Ciao for now.